Section three of the Angels of Moans by Arthur Macon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Dazzling Light The new head covering is made of heavy steel which has been specially treated to increase its resisting power. The walls protecting the skull are particularly thick, and the weight of the helmet renders its use in open warfare out of the question. The rim is large like that of the headpiece of Mambrino, and the soldier can at will either bring the helmet forward and protect his eyes, or wear it so as to protect the base of the skull. Military experts admit that continuance of the present trench warfare may lead to those engaged in it, especially bombing parties and barbed wire cutters, being more heavily armoured than the knights who fought at Bouvines and at Agincourt. The Times, July twenty second, 1915 the war is already a fruitful mother of legends some people think that there are too many war legends and a croydon gentleman or lady i am not sure which wrote to me quite recently telling me that a certain particular legend which i will not specify had become the chief horror of the war there may be something to be said for this point of view but it strikes me as interesting that the old myth-making faculty has survived into these days a relic of noble far-off homeric battles and after all what do we know it does not do to be too sure that this that or the other hasn't happened or couldn't have happened what follows at any rate has no claim to be considered either as legend or as myth it is merely one of the odd circumstances of these times and i have no doubt it can easily be explained away in fact the rationalistic explanation of the whole thing is patent and on the surface there is only one little difficulty and that, I fancy, is by no means insuperable. In any case, this one knot or tangle may be put down as a queer coincidence and nothing more. Here, then, is the curiosity or oddity in question. A young fellow, whom we will call for avoidance of all identification, Delamere Smith, he is now Lieutenant Delamere Smith, was spending his holidays on the coast of West South Wales at the beginning of the war. He was something or other not very important in the city, and in his leisure hours he smattered lightly and agreeably a little literature, a little art, a little antiquarianism. He liked the Italian primitives. He knew the difference between first, second, and third pointed. He had looked through Boutel's engraved brasses. He had been heard indeed to speak with enthusiasm of the brasses of Sir Robert de Septvans and Sir Roger de Trumpington. One morning, he thinks it must have been the morning of august sixteenth nineteen fourteen the sun shone so brightly into his room that he woke early and the fancy took him that it would be fine to sit on the cliffs in the pure sunlight so he dressed and went out and climbed up giltar point and sat there enjoying the sweet air and the radiance of the sea and the sight of the fringe of creaming foam about the grey foundations of st margaret's island then he looked beyond and gazed at the new white monastery on Caldi, and wondered who the architect was, and how he had contrived to make the group of buildings look exactly like the background of a medieval picture. After about an hour of this, and a couple of pipes, Smith confesses that he began to feel extremely drowsy. He was just wondering whether it would be pleasant to stretch himself out on the wild thyme that scented the high place, and go to sleep till breakfast when the mounting sun caught one of the monastery windows, and Smith stared sleepily at the darting, flashing light till it dazzled him. 
then he felt queer there was an odd sensation as if the top of his head were dilating and contracting and then he says he had a sort of shock something between a mild current of electricity and the sensation of putting one's hand into the ripple of a swift brook now what happened next smith cannot describe at all clearly he knew he was on giltar looking across the waves to caldy he heard all the while the hollow booming tide in the caverns of the rocks far below him and yet he saw as if in a glass a very different country a level fenland cut by slow streams by long avenues of trimmed trees it looked he says as if it ought to have been a lonely country but it was swarming with men they were thick as ants in an anthill and they were all dressed in armour that was the strange thing about it i thought i was standing by what looked as if it had been a farmhouse but it was all battered to bits just a heap of ruins and rubbish all that was left was one tall round chimney shaped very much like the fifteenth-century chimneys in pembrokeshire and thousands and tens of thousands went marching by they were all in armour and in all sorts of armour some of them had overlapping tongues of bright metal fastened on their clothes others were in chain-mail from head to foot others were in heavy plate armour they wore helmets of all shapes and sorts and sizes one regiment had steel caps with wide trims something like the old barber's basins another lot had knights tilting helmets on closed up so that you couldn't see their faces most of them wore metal gauntlets either of steel rings or plates and they had steel over their boots a great many had things like battle maces swinging by their sides and all these fellows carried a sort of string of big metal balls round their waist then a dozen regiments went by every man with a steel shield slung over his shoulder the last to go by were crossbowmen in fact it appeared to delamere smith that he watched the passing of a host of men in medieval armour before him and yet he knew by the position of the sun and of a rosy cloud that was passing over the worm's head that this vision or whatever it was only lasted a second or two then that slight sense of shock returned and smith returned to the contemplation of the physical phenomena of the pembrokeshire coast blue waves grey st margaret's and caldy abbey white in the sunlight it will be said no doubt and very likely with truth that smith fell asleep on giltar and mingled in a dream the thought of the great war just begun with his smatterings of medieval battle and arms and armour the explanation seems tolerable enough but there is the one little difficulty it has been said that smith is now lieutenant smith he got his commission last autumn and went out in may he happens to speak french rather well and so he has become what is called i believe an officer of liaison or some such term anyhow he is often behind the french lines he was home on short leave last week and said ten days ago i was ordered to blank i got there early in the morning and had to wait a bit before i could see the general i looked about me and there on the left of us was a farm shelled into a heap of ruins with one round chimney standing shaped like the flemish chimneys in pembrokeshire and then the men in armour marched by just as i had seen them french regiments the things like battle maces were bomb-throwers and the metal balls round the men's waists were the bombs they told me that the crossbows were used for bomb-shooting the march i saw was part of a big movement you will hear more of it before long
the bowmen and other noble ghosts by the londoner there was a journalist and the evening news reader well knows the initials of his name who lately sat down to write a story of course his story had to be about the war there are no other stories nowadays and so he wrote of english soldiers who in the dusk on a field of france faced the sullen mass of the oncoming huns they were few against fearful odds but as they sent the breech-bolt home and aimed and fired they became aware that others fought beside them down the air came cries to st george and twanging of the bowstring the old bowmen of england had risen at england's need from their graves in that french earth and were fighting for england he said that he made up that story by himself that he sat down and wrote it out of his head but others knew better it must really have happened there was i remember a clergyman of good credit who told him that he was clean mistaken the archers had really and truly risen up to fight for england the tale was all up and down the front for my part i had thought that he wrote out of his head i had seen him at the detestable job of doing it i myself have hated this business of writing ever since i found out that it was not so easy as it looks and i can always spare a little sympathy for a man who is driving a pen to the task of putting words in their right places yet the clergyman persuaded me at last who am i that i should doubt the faith of a clerk in holy orders it must have happened those archers fought for us and the grey goose feather has flown once again in english battle since that day i look eagerly for the ghosts who must be taking their share in this world war never since the world began was such a war as this surely marlborough and the duke talbot and harry of monmouth and many another shadowy captain must be riding among our horsemen the old gods of war are wakened by this loud clamour of the guns all the lands are astir it is not enough that asia should be humming like an angry hive and the far islands in arms australia sending her young men and canada making herself a camp when we talk over the war news we call up ancient names we debate how rome stands and what is the matter with greece as for greece i have ceased to talk of her if i wanted to say anything about greece i should get down the poetry book and quote lord byron's fine old ranting verse the mountains look on marathon and marathon looks on the sea but standing on the persian's grave greece seems in the same humour that made lord byron give her up as a hopelessly flabby country tis greece but living greece no more is as true as ever it was that last telegram of the kaiser must have done its soothing work you remember how it ran the kaiser was too busy to make up new phrases he telegraphed to his sister the familiar potsdam sentence woe to those who dare to draw the sword against me i am sure that i have heard that before and he added delightful and significant postscript my compliments to tino and tino king constantine of the hellenes understood he is in bed now with a very bad cold and like to stay in bed until the weather be more settled but before going to bed he was able to tell a journalist that greece was going quietly on with her proper business it was her mission to carry civilization to the world truly that was the mission of ancient greece what we get from tino's modern greece is not civilization but the little black currants for plum cake but rome greece may be dead or in the current trade rome is alive and immortal 
do not talk to me about signor giolitti who is quite sure that the only things that matter in this new italy which is old rome are her commercial relations with germany rome of the legions our ancient mistress and conqueror is alive to-day and she cannot be for an ignoble peace here in my newspaper is the speech of a poet spoken in rome to a shouting crowd i will cut out the column and put it in the poetry book he calls to the living and to the dead i saw the fire of vesta o romans lit yesterday in the great steel works of liguria the fountain of juturna o romans i saw its water run to temper armour to chill the drills that hollow out the bore of guns this is poetry of the old roman sort i imagine that scene in rome the latest poet of rome calling upon the romans in the name of vesta's holy fire in the name of the springs at which the great twin brethren washed their horses i still believe in the power and the ancient charm of noble words i do not think that giolitti and the stockbrokers will keep old rome off the old roads where the legions went postscript while this volume was passing through the press mr ralph shirley the editor of the occult review called my attention to an article that is appearing in the august issue of his magazine and was kind enough to let me see the advanced proof sheets the article is called the angelic leaders it is written by miss phyllis campbell i have read it with great care miss campbell says that she was in france when the war broke out she became a nurse and while she was nursing the wounded she was informed that an english soldier wanted a holy picture she went to the man and found him to be a lancashire fusilier he said that he was a wesleyan methodist and asked for a picture or medal he didn't care which of st george because he had seen him on a white horse leading the british at vitry le francois when the allies turned this statement was corroborated by a wounded r f a man who was present he saw a tall man with yellow hair in golden armour on a white horse holding his sword up and his mouth open as if he was saying come on boys i'll put the kibosh on the devils this figure was bareheaded as appeared later from the testimony of other soldiers and the r f a man and the fusilier knew that he was st george because he was exactly like the figure of st george on the sovereigns hadn't they seen him with his sword on every quid they'd ever had from further evidence it seemed that while the english had seen the apparition of st george coming out of a yellow mist or cloud of light to the french had been vouchsafed visions of st michael the archangel and joan of arc miss campbell says everybody has seen them who has fought through from mons to ypres they all agree on them individually and have no doubt at all as to the final issue of their interference such are the main points of the article as it concerns the great legend of the angels of mons i cannot say that the author has shaken my incredulity firstly because the evidence is second-hand miss campbell is perhaps acquainted with pickwick and i would remind her of that famous and golden ruling of starley jay to the effect that you mustn't tell us what the soldier said it's not evidence miss campbell has offended against this rule and she has not only told us what the soldier said but she has omitted to give us the soldier's name and address if miss campbell proffered herself as a witness at the old bailey and said john doe is undoubtedly guilty a soldier i met told me that he had seen the prisoner put his hand into an old gentleman's pocket and take out a purse 
well she would find that the stout spirit of mr justice starley still survives in our judges the soldier must be produced before that is done we are not technically aware that he exists at all then there are one or two points in the article itself which puzzle me the fusilier and the rfa man had seen st george leading the british at vitry le francois when the allies turned thus the time of the apparition and the place of the apparition were firmly fixed in the two soldiers minds yet the very next paragraph in the article begins where was this i asked but neither of them could tell this is an odd circumstance they knew and yet they did not know or rather they had forgotten a piece of information that they had themselves imparted a few seconds before another point the soldiers knew that the figure on the horse was st george by his exact likeness to the figure of the saint on the english sovereign this again is odd the apparition was of a bareheaded figure in golden armour the st george of the coinage is naked except for a short cape flying from the shoulders and a helmet he is not bareheaded and has no armour save the piece on his head i do not quite see how the soldiers were so certain as to the identity of the apparition lastly miss campbell declares that everybody who fought from mons to ypres saw the apparitions if that be so it is again odd that nobody has come forward to testify at first hand to the most amazing event of his life many men have been back on leave from the front we have many wounded in hospital many soldiers have written letters home and they have all combined this great host to keep silence as to the most wonderful of occurrences the most inspiring assurance the surest omen of victory it may be so but arthur macon end of section three end of the angels of moans by arthur macon